With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. It's Lars Larson. Thanks for listening to my podcast and for listening to The Lars Larson Show. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, You can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit IRAAdvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's IRAAdvantage.com. 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plant. They have said that this is has all the care Four, five former heads of the CIA. Both parties say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. That is Joe Biden. Now, President Joe Biden, but he was making that statement during the presidential debates when he was just candidate Joe Biden. And this is the Lars Larson Show. There's a lot to talk about after Friday night's document dump from Twitter. Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, has decided to show the American public what was actually going on behind the scenes. And what do we see? We see a tale of influence in which the government and government agencies like the FBI were working in concert with private companies like Twitter, then under different management to silence the American public, to hold information back from the American public about a presidential election. But we'll get to that in just a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to have you join the best conversation in talk journalism. It's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Naysayers always go to the head of the line. And if you want to send an email instead, they all come directly to me, nobody else. Talk at LarsLarson.com. You can also answer our Twitter poll, and you'll find that two places, at Lars Larson Show on Twitter, which seems to be getting better and better all the time. Doesn't mean I agree with Elon Musk about all of his crazy ideas, but I'll tell you what, he's doing a tremendous service to America and its representative form of government by letting us know about all the dirty dealings behind the scenes of the Biden crime family. But 
Welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. Glad to be serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for the past 22 and a half years. Yep, we now know what Joe Biden and a lot of folks who work in our federal government from agencies we are supposed to trust, that they wanted to brush off some very important information, not just about Hunter Biden, but about his dad, who's now the president. And I'll get to that in just a moment about why this is still so important today. But you might not have learned any of that information leading up to the 2020 election because Twitter agreed to silence that story from America's oldest newspaper, the New York Post, which broke the story about, and just to remind you of the details, Hunter Biden, who was a druggie, uh, Stale may be a druggie, although he claims to be clean and sober now. He dropped off a laptop to a repair shop in Delaware. Said it, something liquid had been spilled into it. I don't even want to know what that liquid was. But he dropped it off, and then he never picked it up. And the repair shop owner tried to get a hold of him. And when he finally had left it long enough, the laptop became the property of the laptop computer repair shop. So the owner decided to take a look in the hard drive and see what was there. Well, it turns out it was a lot of information, information about Hunter Biden's business dealings in Ukraine, in Moscow and in Beijing, in which he held back a part of the millions of dollars he received for the person he described as the big guy. The big guy, of course, is Joe Biden. But again, all of this got brushed off. You heard Joe Biden himself say, oh, CIA, they say this is a bunch of garbage. And they stuck with that all the way up to the 2020 election. And the White House has stuck with the, the same strategy ever since. Listen to Jen Psaki not long ago. Now, what she said was that the president has said this is all Russian disinformation, that we don't know anything about it. Take a listen to the soundbite. The president has said, and you have tweeted, that allegations of wrongdoing based on files pulled from Hunter Biden's laptop are Russian disinformation. There is a new book by a political reporter that finds some of the files on there are genuine. Is the White House still going with Russian disinformation? I think it's broadly known and widely known, Peter, that there was a broad range of Russian disinformation back in 2020. Yeah, so it's kind of a dodge of an answer because she doesn't say, no, the laptop information is actually valid. She says, well, there was a lot of Russian disinformation back in 2020. Well, guess what happens Friday night? Elon Musk, who spent $44 billion of his rather considerable wealth to buy Twitter, and then assisted by a left-wing journalist, not a right-wing journalist, by the name of Matt Taibbi, he released to the world the inside communications at Twitter. And what did we find out? We found out that FBI agents flew from Washington, D.C. once a week to San Francisco to sit down and have in-person meetings, so no paper trail, leading up to the 2020 election, once a week, to tell Twitter who and what to censor, which stories would not be seen by most of the people on Twitter, which people would actually get cut off. And why is that important today? Because the government has been weaponized in support of the Biden crime family. Because Americans were silenced in their free speech at the direction of a government allegedly limited by the First Amendment. And most importantly, because if you look at what is on Hunter Biden's laptop, you find that tens of millions of dollars made its way from Ukraine, from Moscow and Beijing, China, into the hands of the Biden crime family. And a good percentage of it was held aside for the big guy 
who is now the president of the United States. And if you wonder why so many of Joe Biden's policies, like limiting American energy, like sending hundreds of billions of dollars to China to buy solar panels and windmills made by China, the stuff the Chinese don't even use themselves, they burn old, good old-fashioned coal. They have nuclear power plants. They know the kind of energy that's required to run a modern economy. And why is that working out so well for China? And Joe Biden's policies are working out so badly for America because the Chinese Communist government owns Joe Biden lock, stock and barrel. Even a Hollywood actor and now Twitter activist James Woods got canceled at the direct request of the Biden presidential campaign. And guess what? Now James Woods says he is going to bring some furious legal action against them. Take a listen. And there's something that they should fear more than anything they have ever imagined in their wildest dreams. The most dangerous man to these corrupt, vile vermin is an American who's not afraid of them. And Joe Biden and all those rats who worked with you at the DNC to close down my speech. I am not afraid of you. No, and thank God for that. Just consider the implications of this. If you lived that long ago, I was a kid when it when Watergate happened. If you were shocked at the idea that an American president might engage in illegal activities, I'll tell you what, Watergate was small potatoes compared to what this involves. This involves not just tens of millions of dollars for the Biden crime family. It involves trillions of dollars. It involves the energy future of the United States of America. It involves a president who is so thoroughly compromised to the Chinese communist government that he won't stand up to them. And believe me, that's going to be bad news for all of us. And it is bad news that isn't going to end at the end of a presidential administration. It may carry on for decades ahead of us because the decisions that are made now are going to affect where we stand in the world with regard to China, with regard to energy and everything else for decades to come. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your phone calls at 866-HAY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Coming up, why does Oregon's Attorney General believe she can lie to a federal judge and get away with it? I'll tell you why. Coming up next on the Radio Northwest Network. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of nonsense. Right. You're bloody well right. You know he got a right to say this is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead, fish wrapper, or mainstream media bias. Oregon's attorney general believes that she can lie to a federal judge and get away with it. We got proof of that on Friday night. The American civil rights of more than 4 million Oregonians hang in the balance. On Friday, U.S. District Judge, that's a federal judge, Karen Immergut, heard two of the three lawsuits. Now there have been two more, so it's a total of five lawsuits that are challenging the voter-approved gun ban known as Measure 114. This coming Thursday, the purchase of any gun by any citizen, even an off-duty cop, is banned by law in the state of Oregon. I'm not overstating it. The gun sale is banned by law for everybody unless you're a police agency buying a gun and that is only exempt on duty off duty 
Even an off-duty cop cannot buy a gun starting this Thursday. The law requires a permit that does not exist today, and neither does the class required to get the permit. Do you understand how absolute that is? The state police told the judge on Friday the state will be ready to go with a permit process by Thursday. That was the state's position. Then late last night, the attorney general filed papers telling the judge that only Friday afternoon after the hearing did the state suddenly realize we can't possibly get those permits going in time. So the state lied to the judge twice. It lied to her and said, we can get it done by Thursday. Then it lied to her again yesterday by saying, we didn't even realize we weren't going to be able to get this done by Thursday. I think both of those are lies, and I hope that Judge Immerga takes it that way. Can the government make you get a permit to exercise a U.S. constitutional right? That is what is at the center of the objections to Measure 114. I don't care that it passed by one half of one percentage point. I don't care that it was passed by Multnomah County and rejected by the rest of the state of Oregon. Can the government make you get a permit to exercise a U.S. constitutional right? Poll tests and taxes for voting, they used to be used to deny black Americans the vote. And believe it or not, even California did that. Those got struck down some time ago. Can you imagine getting a permit to engage in free speech or do a talk show or assemble peaceably or go to church or own a Bible? Permits to own a gun make about as much sense as that. And lying to judges? That ought to come with some really harsh punishment. If you want to jump in to the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day. So happy Monday from the Radio Northwest Network, 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers always go first at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Uh, signing himself Figgy, Lars... On Friday night, we watched the rollout of the new B-21 Raider, the United States Air Force Next Generation Strategic Bomber. Actually, I'd point out the first new bomber in 30 years. Actually, much more than a mere bomber, but a strategic offensive weapon system being built as a deterrent. I was struck by all the diversity of all those involved in this endeavor, congressional, military, and civilian contractors, especially at the upper echelons, he writes. I'm certain that the current Secretary of Defense didn't realize that he wasn't supposed to achieve this because of his skin color. That also goes for the current Air Force Chief of Staff. Oh, and who forgot to tell the Northrop Grumman CEO that there's a glass ceiling that she couldn't possibly penetrate? Kind of belies all that woke philosophy, doesn't it? Signed Figgy. And our question of the day, this one I left the name off of at the request of the sender. Lars, I'm a healthcare worker. I was wondering why nobody is talking about our crisis in our hospitals. Our healthcare system will most certainly collapse in the next year due to the increase in population, due to the mass amount of migrants coming into our country. Oregon has the most underbedded hospital system in America. We were in crisis mode before COVID, and now with increases in the migrant population, I would call them illegal aliens, by the way, we are on the verge of collapse. I'd like to talk to you about more about this issue, but because my talking would certainly cause me to lose my job, I would like to remain anonymous, and I'm happy to make that happen. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. 
The way has been paved by Trademark Paving. Just pave it, serving Southwest Washington. I'm going to give today's Daily Grill to the Democrat Party of Oregon. In fact, I'm tempted to do it once a day from now until they change their position. The Democrat Party of Oregon gets it today for refusing to return half a million dollars that the DPO received from an executive of the FTX Cryptocurrency Exchange. Now that they know investors were ripped off by the company, now that we've seen the multi-multi-billion dollar bankruptcy, they know that half million that the DPO got was ill-gotten gains. The Democrat Party of Oregon and Tina Kotek should do the right thing and return the cash to sweet. Now, I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. I want to tell you something. I'm going to keep harping on this until they do it. And frankly, I wish some of my friends who are reporters in radio and television, even at the Daily Dead Fish Wrapper, I wish they put the question to Tina Kotek. She is the titular head of the Democrat Party. In other words, while she doesn't hold the position of party chair as the new governor-elect and a Democrat, she could pick up the phone and call the Democrat Party and say, we have to do the right thing and return that money. The money was ripped off from people. Those people, many of them are bigger investors. I'm not one of them, by the way, so I don't have a direct dog in the fight. But some of them are average folks who put some of their money, maybe a lot of their money, into that FTX cryptocurrency exchange. They got ripped off. Their money got stolen. It got transferred somewhere else despite a written guarantee that that would not happen. Now, is it the right thing to return it? Let me point out another Democrat, Robert Francis O'Rourke. You might know him as Beto O'Rourke, the guy who lost the governor's race in Texas. He returned the money about a month ago after it became clear something was wrong at FTX. The Democrat Party doesn't want to do it because it's most of what they've got in their bank account right now. They'll be pretty close to broke. But if it's a choice of broke and return the money to people it was stolen from so that it can be paid back to them, even 10 cents on the dollar, or hanging on to it for the future of the DPO, you tell me, Tina Kotek. And for reporters who cover Kotek, I've tried to get her on the show any number of times. I tried for eight years to uh, seven years to get uh, Kate Brown to come on the show. Uh, I even talked to Kate Brown face to face. She said, we'll set it up. Just talk to my people. I have talked to her people. Her people don't return our phone calls. But here's my point. You've got to do the right thing and return the money. And if you're a reporter, you've got to do the right thing and ask Tina Kotek. If you're not going to send the money back, 
Tell us why. Today's best email sent to you uh, by the MEI Group, the largest heavy civil construction company, now hiring project managers, engineers, and estimators, themeigroup.com. Lars, last week I heard that 58 of the top 100 medical schools now require critical race theory. If I'm paying to get a degree, I expect there are certain things related to performing tasks my degree qualifies me to do. I think considering the race of my patient or my doctor would make me a racist, signed Chris in Medford. Back in just a moment, you're listening to Monday and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, It's the Radio Northwest Network and our Twitter poll today. Should Washington State, get this, require that all gun owners undergo a yearly background check? No, not not a check when you're buying a gun. No, once you buy the gun, a check on your background once a year for the rest of your life. Now, that's actually in a law that's been on the book for four years. And now Governor Inslee's administration has said, we think we'll start enforcing that. It's likely to cost a massive amount of money. It means you could have as many as a million, maybe even a couple of million people have to undergo yearly background checks when all you do is own a gun. It's already on the books. They could do it. They have chosen not to do it because it was absolutely an insanely large project up till now. But it sounds like Jay Inslee is trying to jump on the gun control wagon right now. Our Twitter poll can be found at Lars Larson Show. And it's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Now, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the program after far too long, Donna Kreitzberg, who is with a group called Edge. Education Freedom for Oregon, and this group has achieved something very important that's going to be on the ballot. Not immediately, but uh, there's there. I hope it'll be on the ballot. I should say, Donna, welcome back. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. I've told my audience that I, when I saw what happened in Arizona, when where the state earlier this year passed a law, the governor Governor Ducey signed it into effect, saying that if parents say I want to take my kids out of the failing government schools and I want to take them somewhere else, private school. Uh, parochial school, uh, charter school, online school, whatever it happens to be, they get a chance to take some, not all, but some of the money with them that would otherwise be spent on their child in public school. Your group, educationfreedomfororegon.com, has now got approved ballot titles, and now you have to gather the signatures to put these on the ballot. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. The Attorney General has given us certified ballot titles. The Secretary of State has acknowledged that our measures are constitutional. And as soon as that happened, unfortunately, the big wigs from the Oregon Teachers Union sued the Attorney General and is taking the case to the Supreme Court, basically using the same arguments they've made for the last two years. And it seems to be more just a, a, a stall tactic to stop us from beginning to collect. We need about 250,000 signatures per measure to get it on the ballot. And we're burning daylight here because we we're aren't into the time period we would collect signatures. And the teachers union is unfortunately burning through about six more months of that. So we just have more work to do in a shorter amount of time when we get out, which will be about March 1st of 23, when the hopefully the Supreme Court throws their appeal out. And then do you have to have the signatures in place by what, July of 24 or sooner than that? July 5th of 24, I believe, is the date. And then the Secretary of State takes some time to make sure that we have the number that we need. And then they would go on the November, I don't even know what it is, November 5 of 24 ballot. Yeah, it's kind of tough to to reach that far in the future. So, Donna, 
Would you describe it? Well, I know it's uh, we're all supposed to memorize all this stuff, and I'm I'm not going to do it. Um, Donna, tell my audience how how would the nuts and bolts of this work for parents, for students, and for the school district? Great. So I wrote these as a mom from the perspective of a mom because I am a mom, and I wanted to make them as protective as possible and also as simple as possible. And we have basically our, our plan here is not to change any school but to offer parents the choice among all the different school settings as to what works best for their child. So for the public school system, we have an open enrollment measure that basically says, hey, if you want to stay in public school, but you think that the public school in a different district is better, then if that school has room, the school has to take you. So mom gets to choose which school is best for the child, whether it's a public school or public charter, and she basically fills out a form and says, hey, I want to go here, and if the school has room, the school has to take it, take the child. Now, what that's doing is turning it 180 degrees from what it currently is, which is where a parent has to go and bend a knee to a district that they're assigned to and say, hey, please, may I go somewhere else? And the district will often say no because they don't want the money to go. So we're basically empowering the parent, which is what it should be, and we're allowing the child to get the education in the setting that the child should. And on the private side, we're also making it available to parents who say, you know, I don't want my child in a public school. I want to opt out of the public system. I want to request some portion of the $5 billion we spend on school a year and have that money put into an account. Parent doesn't touch it. Parent gets to choose a nonprofit to handle it because we don't want the money stuck over in the state. And then the parent can direct the money to be spent for customizing the education for the parent's child, whether that's education therapy, private school tuition, computers, transportation, homeschool curriculum, national testing fees, all the sort of things that a parent would need to pay for to get their child in education. And the thing to keep in mind here is that all of the money that we pay in taxes, and there's a myriad of of different taxes that go into the pot, all of that money is supposed to be based on the Oregon Constitution, spent on all of our K-12 through kids. Our measures will make that happen. It's the kids' money. It's supposed to be spent to educate them. We need to keep the focus on making sure the kids get the best education. So we're empowering parents to choose because they they know the needs of their child. Do they want to be in a public charter? Do they want to be a private school? Do they want to homeschool? Whatever they want to do, the money will then be able to follow that child and it costs about $15,000 to educate a child in public school, we're offering about 7600 to the parent to use that money in a private school. And K-8 through eight private schools typically range around 6000 So if a private school parent <laughs> is frugal, they can use the money that they get and then have excess, and that excess will roll over every year. And when the child completes high school, there's a potential for that child to have a pot of money that we are authorizing them to use on Oregon College or trade school. The money came from Oregon, so we're making it stay here. But now we have a situation where there's kids out there who maybe didn't even think they were going to graduate from high school. Now they have the opportunity to choose the environment, choose a private school or homeschool, and then have money to go become an engineer at Oregon State like my son. Or they're going to be a welder or an artist or all these different things because the focus has to be getting the kids the best education. And COVID showed us that Education in public school where they're mandated to go isn't the best solution for all of them. And we don't want a situation where we have two classes of people. Everybody pays taxes for public school. And then if you don't agree with what's been taught in public school, you have to write an additional check to fund private school or homeschool. That's not fair. All that money should just follow the child. And, And by the way, Donna, I can see why the unions hate your idea and why I love it. Because if you end up showing 
uh, a child can be well-educated for half as much money as we're currently paying, 15000 a year, K through 12, per student per year. Uh, that's going to that's gonna bring about a whole nother level of argument, but it also forces competition on the public schools. If they start losing their kids either to homeschool, private school, or the school across town, they, are, they have two choices. They can step up and say, let's improve what we're offering to the kids so parents will bring their kids back. Or uh, if, if they do a bad enough job, I guess, they can go out of business, which wouldn't be a bad thing either. Right. And the, and the studies show there's been 30 years of private school choice and, and so forth. And the studies show that this is the tide that rises all boats or whatever that expression is. Basically, it, it forced with competition, the public schools for the first time have to listen to the complaints of the parents. They have to choose to deliver a better product to the student or the student now has the escape route to go somewhere else, whether it's a charter school or, like you say, a district school somewhere else or leave the public system altogether. And another nice thing is it shows that teachers are valued more in public schools because now if Mr. Jones is a great geometry teacher and all of a sudden he has the opportunity to go teach at a private school or start his own school or something like that, finally the public school will say, gosh, you know, we like him, we want him here, we better actually give him a pay raise or or give him some benefits to make him stay. So the teachers get better, you know, it's better for them in the the competition. Sorry. Donna, I'm going to tell people, if you want to find out more about it, they can't gather the signatures yet because the unions are fighting it. The group is called Education Freedom, F-O-R-Oregon.com. That's Education Freedom for Oregon.com. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. It is an abundance of riches on a Monday here on the network that serves Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. I have two naysayers on the line, so I'm going to be fair about this and take Harley, who's been waiting longer. Harley, welcome to the program. You know how much we love naysayers on this program. have for more than 25 years, so thanks for calling. Uh, What's on your mind, and what do you and I disagree about today? Yeah, so I... I disagree with the repayment of the FTX um, um, contribution that the Democratic Party received. Okay. Uh, Just so everybody else knows, uh, it wasn't from Sam Bankman-Fried, but from one of the other executives of FTX. FTX is a cryptocurrency exchange that now looks more like a scam because billions of dollars were apparently shifted out of it. The people who had invested most of that money had written agreements that said my money will not be used for or loaned or given away to anybody else. Uh, the, this executive gave half a million dollars to the Democratic Party of Oregon. Now the whole company's in bankruptcy. People have lost a lot of money. The bankruptcy receivers will figure out who gets five cents or ten cents on the dollar of the money they originally had in there. Can you tell me why shouldn't the Democrat Party of Oregon return that money? So... I kind of look at it as if it was a business, and I think it's probably fair to say that they run it, the okay. Democratic Party as a business. And if I have someone buy a product for my business for, you know, whatever amount, am I going to earmark that and say, well, this could be from, you know, a bad, you know, bad place or something? Do I need to earmark that and say, well, I'm not going to spend this on other inventory well, you're not a political. Or, you've asked an interesting question, but let me put it this way. Campaigns routinely take a hard look at bigger donations. They don't necessarily look at the small ones. But if somebody comes in, I mean, there have been issues throughout the, you know, in the past where 
you take money from somebody who turns out to be a drug dealer or you take money from somebody who's a, who makes yeah. pornography. And campaigns have returned that because the money stinks, frankly. They, you know, the smell of it comes with it from the donor. And in this case, but in this case, isn't there a moral obligation if FTX took the money from people who were promised your money will not be loaned or given away or invested somewhere else? We're going to give you fiduciary responsibility. We're going to, you know, we're going to put your money where you where you wanted it in this crypto, and then somebody, although Sam Bankman-Fried, as the CEO claims, he doesn't know who moved ten billion dollars over to a company that he has called Alameda Research. He claims he doesn't know who moved the ten billion, even though he's the CEO. But if you find out that money was taken and used for things it was promised in writing not to be used for. Isn't there a moral obligation to return the money? Maybe, but at the same time, I, the Democratic Party, they're they're going to spend the money. They don't. Should well, they follow up? Can I point? Can I point yes, out, Harley? Morally. I have pointed out. You know who Robert Francis O'Rourke is? Yeah, and he made Beto. a political decision to. Well, yeah, Beto said, "I'm giving the money back." Now, now I thought he was right to give it back. Are, is the, are the Democrats right to keep the cash? Saying it's cash, spends like any anybody else's cash. We don't care where it came from. We don't care who got hurt. We're glad to have the cash is the attitude of the Democrat Party. Aren't they the ones that are always claiming to be standing up for the average blue-collar person? There are, there are some average folks who invested in crypto, and now they've lost their life savings, and they may get back 5 or $0.10 cents or $0.20 cents on the dollar. Nobody knows yet. But if some of that money stays with the Democrat Party, that's some people who will not get their money back. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, no. But <laughs> I'll go back to my business. To my business. Okay. If you, if have I you got, ever been through a know, bankruptcy? Customer, I have not. No, I have not. I haven't either. But I was. Uh, uh, there was a company. Can I tell you a short story involving the Northwest? Okay, there was a big company, I thought it was a good company, Smith's Home Furnishings. They were around for a long time, run by a great guy, Glenn Grodem. Um, they spent a lot of money on radio advertising. And uh, our flagship station sold them a lot of advertising and delivered the advertising. And then months later, uh, they went bankrupt. Uh, Smith's went bankrupt, not the radio station. And the bankruptcy court did what's called clawing the money back. They came to the radio stations and everybody else they'd sold it, you know, they'd bought advertising from, that Smiths had bought advertising from, and said, you have to give the money back. And they said, hold on, we delivered the advertising. We took the money. You know, we paid it out, you know, and some to the salespeople who sold it and all that. And guess what? They had to give the money back. The bankruptcy court can claw the money back to a, to a certain degree. You know, months, deals that had been made and paid for months in the past that money was required to be paid back, even though everybody involved in taking the money, the advertisers, uh, people who provided the advertising, newspapers, radio, TV, and all that, they'd done exactly what they promised to do. They didn't think it was ill-gotten gains. But when the company went banco, they had to pay the money back. So then the Democratic Party is just going to have to wait. Or they're going to well, wait. Well, I, I, I don't know that they can force the Democrat Party to do it, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep asking, I want Tina Kotek to explain. If she wants her party to keep that money, here's what I'd like to hear from Tina Kotek, champion of the average person, champion of the blue-collar worker. I want her to explain 
What morally justifies the DPO hanging on to half a million dollars of other people's money that it knows came from those people without their permission and now sits in the bank account of the Democrat Party? And just how sleazy and dirty are the Democrats? And this should answer that. You got the Lars Larson Show. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday, and we're live on the Radio Northwest Network, which at least endeavors to serve the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk. Our Twitter poll is somewhat related to what we're going to talk about with a guest here in just a moment. Should Washington State require that everyone who owns a gun undergo a yearly background check, not just a check when they actually purchase the gun, But once you purchase the gun, you've essentially, in Washington state, signed up for a lifetime of background checks each and every year, which I think is more than a little bit crazy, very invasive, not terribly useful, likely expensive, and it's been so impractical that the state of Washington for the last four years has just been ignoring the law that requires them to do it. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges, but how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Which I guess if you're in government, you can just say, we only follow the laws we want to follow. Kind of like Joe Biden does. Anyway, you can find the question at Lars Larson Show uh, on Twitter and LarsLarson.com on the web. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now, I want to talk to Pete Serrano, who's one of the attorneys who's filed an amicus brief, which is a fancy way of saying friend of the court brief, against Oregon's ballot measure 114, the gun ban that goes into effect on Thursday. There are now five lawsuits, as I understand, maybe there are more, but I know there are at least five that have been brought against measure 114. Two of them were heard before a federal judge on Friday. 
which gave the Oregon Attorney General the opportunity to lie to the judge on Friday and then lie again on Sunday. Maybe we can talk about that, too. Pete, welcome to the program. Thanks, Lars. Thanks for having me. So tell me this. Should we expect that this de facto ban on buying guns for all persons, including even off-duty cops and off-duty military, is going to actually snap into effect on Thursday? I think the judge is actually going to grant the, re- the requested relief. You know, of course, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not like uh, Jalen Glee up here who could predict when COVID would end. Um, you know, but but I do think the judge, we gave her sufficient evidence to grant the request, which was to enjoin this um, un- until the state can really figure out till all the facts can be litigated. And, and so I'm hoping that what I said is correct, that she will actually stand with the position that both the law and the facts, I believe, support, which is this thing needs to be stopped. All right. And stopped at least temporarily pending you and other lawyers going into court and arguing why it should never go into effect because it's unconstitutional. Am I going too far in saying that? No, you are absolutely correct. Uh, You know, right now, the request is simply this, you know, judge, what we want to do is be able to present a full case. We can't do that in two weeks, right? Which from the date of filing and to your point, Thursday, when this goes into effect, uh, it would be impossible to fully brief it up. Now we have submitted both as amicus and the several versions of the plaintiff. I think quite frankly, we've covered nearly the full spectrum, whether it's the historical analysis required under Bruin whether the the information we submitted, which was actually the data points of, hey, judge, there are about 334 million people in the U.S., and guess what? There are 160-plus million of these 10-round magazines, or whether it's uh, even the state's agreement that it's not prepared to do some of the background checks. Um, that was kind of a tacit admission on Friday, but then you mentioned last night, they actually, the state, filed with the court this, well, we're not ready on the firearms training component, where which is required by 114, that you have to have a live, in-person um, firearms training, then you submit that to your local law enforcement, and, you know, they, they admit that they're not prepared to do that. So they're already walking back, even if their request, which would be to deny the temporary uh, halt, uh, that they're not ready to produce or proceed with that. So I think, you know, we're already chipping away at this and the judge is still yet to issue a ruling. Well, I've put it to my, because I'm not a lawyer, but I put it to my audience. What should we think when the government, even if it's something passed by the voters, but the government says you must get a permit to exercise a constitutional right. Does that sound reasonable? Not at all. I mean, uh, you know, what you're asking is, did the founders actually get it right? Right. And, and that's the fundamental question. If you're telling me that I now need to show that I'm competent to exercise a constitutionally protected right, you're slapping the founders in the face and saying, well, they came to this agreement amongst themselves, but these were kind of like the lowest thresholds. Now we're adding an additional threshold. So that's really not the lowest threshold, right? Uh, when they created the constitution, they look to protect the rights as as extensively as possible. And, and so, again, I think it's fundamentally just saying they got it wrong. Well, and the other thing, and you tell me, I'm like, like I said, I don't even try to be a lawyer, but is there a comparison to be made between what they're doing to people who either have guns or want to buy a gun today 
and what Southern bigots and some Northern bigots too did when they said, oh, sure, you black folks can vote, but you got to pay, pay a tax and you have to take a test. And if you can't pay the tax or you can't pass the test, sorry, you don't have a permit to vote. I mean, that's what poll tests and poll taxes were, weren't they? Yeah, you know, that was the, the basis of those tests and taxes. But here, you know, it's, it's simply saying, well, even if you were to pass the test, we still can. One of the issues is that there's there's no question that these are arbitrarily in, in place, right? Some of these permit processes. And so once you've already secured either concealed carry or your license to have a gun, you know, you register with with it when you go to Sportsman's Warehouse or your favorite local gun store. And now they're saying that you have to pass a separate test by the state. And it's like, well, wait, the federal government just licensed this gun to me. So why is it that now I need the state people who we don't know who they are or what their background is? Why, why are we even giving them authority to, to, to declare that I have no right to have a gun? And, and so I, I do see the similarity. I think it's, to your original question, I think it's even uh, more grossly extensive um, when you say that, no, you don't have a right to bear arms. You know, here in Washington state, it, it tells us that it's constitutionally protected by the state. The right to bear arms in self-defense and in defense of the state shall not be impaired. Right. And right. I think that's even broader protection than the U.S. government. Um, so, yeah, I, I see it's, it's very offensive in that right. Well, and, and the, the magazine limit, saying you can't even possess a magazine that will hold, is capable of holding more than 10. Is that, const, is that a constitutional limit? No, there's nothing that indicates that historically that that's been appropriate. In fact, I find it interesting that the state of Oregon in the Measure 114 litigation actually addressed the Poway shooting. And if you don't recall that, that was a 2019 shooting of a synagogue in San Diego County. What they talk about is the individual had a 10-round magazine plus five 10-rounders strapped to him. And unfortunately, we didn't get to this point on Friday. And I'm Hold that thought for just a second. I'm going to hold Pete Serrano over into the next segment if he's got the time. It's a Monday. It's the Radio Northwest Network. And it's your opportunity to sound off at 866-HEY-LARS. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's the Radio Northwest Network serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. And Pete Serrano is one of the attorneys who filed an amicus brief in the now five lawsuits that have been filed to block Oregon's ballot measure 114. A, Among other things, it is a de facto ban on all gun sales starting Thursday and ending, well, God knows when. Uh, because it might end in a couple of months, might end in six months. I mean, we've had all kinds of representations from the lawyers. Pete, you started to tell the story involving the Poway shooting. Now, as I remember, that was at a synagogue in Poway, California, about three years ago. And you were saying the the killer in that case, the, the shooter in that case, uh, had a gun, uh, an AR-15 platform, but he had a 10-round magazine and a whole bunch of other 10-round magazines. And you said in court on Friday, you never quite got to what point in telling the court about this. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Lars. Good synopsis. So he, he had an AR-10 and all those 10-round magazines. And with that, the, the state of Oregon's attorney, when the judge asked him, what about 
magazines with less than 10 rounds or, or 10 rounds or less, excuse me. He said, go ahead, game on. You can have however many you want. And, and what I really wanted to do at that time, and unfortunately we were proceeding to closing, we didn't get a chance to jump on this. I wanted to say, listen, in Poway, you had 10 round magazines. People died. One person died, I believe. Several were injured. And guess who stopped this? An off-duty police officer who used his firearm to cease this, who shot at. And unfortunately, the news didn't tell us how many rounds he had. But the point is, if you're trying to cease gun violence, which the state admits is the purpose of this, 10 rounds, 11 rounds, 15 rounds, 6 rounds, people will still use firearms negatively and ceasing the sales of more than 10 rounds does not stop the violence. That's very clear from that Poway example. And so I really want to point out that inherent inconsistency, not just in the Poway story, but in the state's attorney general's representation that, hey, have as many 10-round magazines as you want. Those are safe. Well, Again, and, it's not for and, us a safety issue. It's a constitutional issue. See, and, and I get the impression this judge may or may not be as Karen Emmergut. I don't know. I may have met her once over the years, but I, I don't really recall. But somebody with, you know, a, a pistol or two and a whole backpack, a kid's backpack full of magazines, I think is almost more dangerous than the person who's got one thirty round magazine. Because anybody who's familiar with changing out magazines, it takes maybe a second at most to change the magazine. So it doesn't change the picture. Now, I've had some pro-gun friends of mine say, well, don't tell them that. They'll have us down to one shot. We'll be all be Barney Fife walking around with one one round in our in our pocket, you know, and nothing in the gun because they'll want to take us to zero. But you make a good point. And when you talk about the cops and what they usually carry, many of them carry, you know, nine millimeter pistols that carry many more than 10 rounds. And yet under this law, as I understand it, I mean, I know some of it's going to go to the lawyers if it if it stays in effect and is not struck down. An off-duty cop who on duty carries a pistol that may hold 15 rounds or even 17 rounds is going to be limited to a 10-round magazine because he's off-duty. And and he wouldn't be able to carry his on-duty gun off And most cops are encouraged strongly to carry a gun off-duty so that if they run into a situation, they can deal with it. And we've certainly all seen body cam and other videos where cops are confronted by two or three suspects. And with two or three suspects, if any of them is or are armed or some of them are armed, you know, having as many rounds as you can possibly get makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the misnomers, the court, and I'll say courts, because we're litigating the 10-round magazine up in Washington as well, the Senate Bill 5078. One of the misnomers that I think the courts continually uh, hinge on is, well, there's no statistic or the statistics are very low of people who have used firearms in self-defense. And it's like, well, first, I don't, you know, first, I personally, when I carry, it's not to shoot someone in self-defense. It's to make sure that I need it in case, right? Right. So like a misnomer of, yeah, well, perfect example. One of my colleagues said that he's like, seatbelts are ineffective because I didn't get in a car crash today. Well, no, seatbelt was effective. It did its job, and it was prepared to do it in the event that you needed it. It's same thing, perfect example. And, and so, you know, one thing I want to do is as we continue to work down these analyses, kind of tell the courts, listen, it's not just did you fire it in self-defense. Uh, I don't think many people that carry guns want to fire them, but they want nope. to have them in the event they need them. Right. I mean, I, I tell people I've got a fire extinguisher here in the studio. Has my studio ever caught fire? No. 
Will I always have a current fire extinguisher on the wall? Yep. Do I expect to ever need yeah. it? No. But if I don't have it and I do need it, then I'm screwed. And and I guess yeah. we haven't even gotten into, and I don't know whether the court case are going to get into, the huge invasion into people's lives of saying, if you buy a gun post-measure 114, if it stays in effect, you will be put in a statewide database that will be created for the first time ever. And your information will be published because M114 requires it once a year. So if a young lady who decides I'm going to protect myself from an ex-boyfriend or ex-husband or whatever uh, has, goes and buys a pistol, all you've got to do is look it up. She owns a gun. And, and now you've got information about her that I'm pretty sure many people would say, I don't want that information shared. It will now be shared with the general public and anybody who wants to know it, including thieves who might want to target you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the worst of the worst of all bad laws, right? It's not just prohibiting how you can use or what you can use, but it's also, you know, making your identity out there. And it's really violating every component of individual rights, whether it's the protection of the constitutional right to bear arms or if it's the right to privacy. I mean, it's amazing. You know, I guess on one hand, I look at the Oregon the folks that wrote this and like, it's amazing how diabolical it is. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people didn't catch that on its face. You know, it's a pretty lengthy law or a bill. And uh, unfortunately, it wasn't caught. And hopefully, you know, well, we'll be able to overturn this either you immediately. You mentioned Washington State. Jay Inslee apparently plans to go ahead with this law from four years ago, 1639 that mandates an annual background check. Now, I've got a dog in the fight on this. I own some guns, pistols, and rifles. This thing says Jay Inslee and his crowd of bureaucrats get to run a background check on me once a year just because. And and I, you know, what they're going to do with that information, I assume they think sometime they're going to find, well, Lars didn't have a felony last year. I don't. Uh, and he has a felony now. I don't. Uh, and, and so we're going to go to his house. Uh, with a SWAT team, and we're going to raid his house and strip him of all his firearms. Is that, I mean, this is the kind of craziness that Democrat governors uh, and Democrat governments get up to. And and they apparently now say, even though they've ignored the law, the requirement of the annual background check for just because, they're now going to start doing the annual background checks on, what, a million or a couple of million people who've done nothing wrong, who've broken no law, who there's no probable cause to believe they've done anything wrong, but we're gonna, just going to background check them just for because? Pete, I hope you guys get on top of that one as well. That's Pete Serrano. He's one of the attorneys who's filed an amicus brief. Uh, the five lawsuits began on Friday. At least some of them may be decided as soon as tomorrow. And let's hope Measure 114, the gun ban, is struck down. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'll get back to your phone calls and emails shortly at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You know, at the time, at the beginning of the pandemic, when we saw the Congress say, we are going to shovel out hundreds of billions of dollars to people in America who need it, I thought, well, here comes a great opportunity for a whole bunch of people who don't actually need the money. Uh, they, you know, In other words, need from a business sense. Can they actually pay the bills? The money was intended to say, 
If you're an employer and all your revenue just disappeared, we'd like to keep your staff on. You keep them on payroll. And if you bring them out after the pandemic ends, remember two weeks to flatten the curve and all that, uh, then we will forgive the loan. In effect, give you the money. Well, it sounds like everybody who could lined up to, uh, to to grab onto that. I I didn't touch any of the PPP money, so I don't have a direct dog in the fight. But the guy who's actually been following the numbers and coming up with some stunning new information about what happened to $1.4 billion in forgiven PPP loans is Adam Angievsky, who's the CEO and founder of Open the Books and a columnist at Forbes.com. Adam, welcome back. Uh, great to be on the program, Lars. Thanks for having me back. I'm actually, just to clarify, I'm a former columnist at Forbes. I was there eight years, put up over 200 investigations for about 20 million page views, but I'm no longer there. Okay, I we won't get it. I over the Fauci <laughs> finance reporting. You did? Hold, hold on yes. a second. I want my audience. So you've been on here on my show to talk about the Fauci financial reporting. These are just reasonable questions about how does this guy who's the highest paid federal employee also make a whole bunch of money on the side? It's a question that even Senator Rand Paul has been asking and not getting entirely satisfactory answers. That's what got you fired from Forbes? Yeah. And Rand Paul on the third party paid royalties, he uses our information to hold Fauci to account in those hearings, and, re- and Fauci refuses to answer the questions. So, yeah, we in my Forbes column uh, back in January of 2021, I broke the fact that Fauci was the number one most highly compensated employee. We broke that on your program, too, Lars. And then we followed the money. We showed exactly how he profited during the pandemic. Well, that entire circumstance, uh, I detail it all. Uh, this spring, that led, uh, Forbes terminated my column. I mean, because just so people understand, and I'm sorry to hear you were terminated, although you ought to wear it a, like a badge of honor, like Cheryl Atkinson, who left CBS, and a number of other people who've done the right thing. So people know Fauci had done very, very well in federal employment, not just making a ton of money from the federal government, not just having a, a golden, golden parachute of, I think, north of 400, almost $500,000 a year in retirement. But he was worth about $5 million at the beginning of the pandemic after several decades of being at NIH. By the end of the pandemic, two years later, he was worth $12 million, if I remember the numbers right. So yeah, more no, than you're good more than doubled his net worth. So the pandemic was very, very good to Anthony Fauci. But I, I want to get to this. And all PP. of that. Yeah, What's all that? Of Go that. ahead. We nailed every single story that you, whether it was his pension, 375000 he's going to retire on the largest in federal history, the number one salary, how he profited during the pandemic, and the huge increase in his net worth, and the third-party royalties. That's all us. And it's no longer at Forbes. <laughs> and Forbes didn't like it. You know, that's pretty sad. But but then again, there are a lot of people aren't at Twitter anymore because they decided to play political games. Let's go to the PPP loans for a yeah. moment. I thought, even though they wanted to do this in a hurry to get this money out, there were a lot of, I mean, there were a lot of businesses that I don't have any tie to. But, I, you know, if I saw some restaurant that thought, okay, they just went to zero revenue coming in. They've got all these people who work for them. And the Congress said, well, if we give you some money to kind of tide you over for 16 or 18 weeks, you keep all those people on the payroll. They'll be able to come back to work for you. And if they do, uh, we will forgive the loan. That seemed somewhat legitimate. You could argue the philosophical idea of should the government be bailing out small businesses. But there were some good examples of great big outfits, including multi-multi-million-dollar law firms that said, hey, free money available, we'll take it, and they got it, didn't they? Yeah, who knew, Lars? Who knew 
that the largest law firms and accounting firms in the country had their handout. They treated the COVID aid pandemic program like their own cash cow. We took the 300 largest law firms in the country and the 300 largest accounting firms in the country. We ran them through the PPP database, and it's absolutely stunning. 126 out of the top 300 law firms took an average of $6.5 million. In the aggregate, they took $800 million out of that program. There was 236 accounting firms in the top 300. Most of them took a forgiven PPP loan. If you add up the law firms and the accounting firms, you and I paid for these very wealthy outfits $1.4 billion. And and not only that, but you, I thought, made the very good point. I'm talking to Adam Andrzejewski from OpenTheBooks.com and fired former columnist wears it as a badge of honor from Forbes. <laughs> these firms were still making bank during the pandemic, weren't they? So we took, we took, you know, they disclosed their revenues because they want to be ranked. They want to have that top 300 ranking. So we took a look at the disclosed revenues off the National Law Journal and, and Accounting Today, and what we found was absolutely stunning. Many of these firms, you know, we, we found firms that doubled their revenues between 2019 and 2021. It's, it's Witham, Smith & Brown. They're the top 22nd largest accounting firm in the country. They grew their revenues from $200 million to over $400 million, and yet they took a forgiven PPP loan on the backs of taxpayers for $10 million. You have David Boyce's law firm down in Boca Raton, Florida. By the way, but stop put- for a second. Remind people of who David Boyce is because he's got an interesting <laughs> set of politics, doesn't he? Yeah, he really does. So whether it's the National Democrats, the Biden administration, or state-level Democrats, his firm basically is involved in a lot of straight Democratic uh, representation. Uh, And he used to employ Hunter Biden, uh, you know, of counsel. So Biden didn't have to show up for regular company meetings. Uh, He made 210,000 in the year 2010 from the law firm, you know, and and others. Uh, But anyway, there's 20,000 law firms across the country that got a forgiven PPP loan. And we can see them all in our database at OpenTheBooks.com. Guess who the number one largest forgiven PPP loan flowed to? And it was David Boyce's law firm, Boyce, Schiller, and Flexner in Boca Raton, Florida. They got $10.14 million forgiven. And we took a look at their revenues. In the pandemic years of 2020 and 2021, the Boyce Law Firm billed clients nearly a half billion dollars, $480 million in billion. Their average profits per partner during that period was $4.5 million. They made millions of dollars in profits. They racked up hundreds of millions of dollars in revenues, but you and I paid for their forgiven $10.14 million PPP loan. It almost sounds like the PPP loan was kind of a, it would have been a rounding error on their annual revenues. I mean, 10, 10 million out of 480 million, they wouldn't have had to break a sweat not to take the money. But if it was available, they took it. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And during the election years of 2020 and the election cycles of 2020 and 2022, not the firm, but their partners and employees kicked nearly $1 million in federal campaign donations. It's a lot easier to give money to the the Democrats. 
it, it almost sounds like a nice money laundry. Like you don't have to send the money all the way to Ukraine. You can just send it to your favorite local law firm and they'll kick 10% of their forgiven law, forgiven PPP loan over to the Democrat Party. So that way you don't have to, you know, send it to Burisma or some other place on the planet. Adam, we're going to suggest that people take a look at that. And shame on Forbes.com for firing Adam Angievsky, the CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday. It's my pleasure to be with you. And the Radio Northwest Network serves Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk. And this segment of the show is brought to you by NickShivers.com for an instant offer to sell your home immediately. No showing, no hassles, and you pick the closing date. NickShivers.com for details. Today's Twitter poll, should Washington State, that's different than Measure 114 in Oregon, should Washington State require that everyone who owns a gun undergo a yearly background check. Not at your discretion, at the state's discretion. There was a law passed in 2018, voter-approved law, and uh, it's called 1639. And Governor Jay Inslee's administration, according to Crosscut, which is a left-wing publication, is now working to implement the law. You say, well, didn't they implement it already? There are parts of it they put into effect. The problem is that part of the law says that if you own a gun, pistols and semi-automatic rifles, that you must have an annual background check. Well, how do you do that? Well, you have to build a database of everybody in the state who owns a gun, and that would be the first time that Washington State has had such a database, and then I guess run a million or better people, maybe a couple of million people, through a background check every 12 months, I guess hoping to find that some of them have become felons or domestic abusers or they've been sent off to a mental hospital like Western, and then, I guess, go out and seize their firearms, probably without due process or just compensation as the Constitution requires. But, hey, nobody expects Jay Inslee to actually follow the Constitution, do they? But this is the kind of insanity a spokesperson for the governor's office said that in September, there is not a way to legally conduct the check under our current system. The Department of Licensing is tasked with keeping the information on file, but neither the federal government nor Washington state keeps records on who actually owns the guns. So how do they go about doing it? I guess they go out and try to start putting people in a database. So should the state go along with the law passed four years ago, that says every single person who owns a pistol or a semi-automatic rifle must undergo an annual background check. Buying a gun in Washington state has now become a life sentence of background checks. And does anybody think that's a great idea or that it's gonna solve any crimes? I don't think so. I would say no. But uh, today's Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Let's go to your calls now. And if you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Tammy, what's on your mind? Hey, so um, you've had an attorney on here talking about BM114. Yep. And there's a couple of things that um, I'm not sure are getting the attention that they deserve. Um, okay. 
One with regard to the permit process, uh, I know the AG in her re- her rebuttal um, indicated that people who hadn't uh, received an, a reply to the permit process, providing that were to go through, um, would be able to have relief by going to the court. So we have... 30 days. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. For them to respond from the time that they receive the permit request, who knows how long that will take since they said this is going to be done by hand. Yep. Other agencies have said they would have to courier or mail at the permit request to the state. So, don't anticipate with how many they receive that they're going to get many done in a 30-day time period. Nope. So her saying our relief, which appears to be our only relief, would be to petition the courts. That's problematic. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, hu- the, the whole law is hugely problematic. I mean, the, the, the law makes reference to... Uh, you know, making sure that you can prove, say, you bought a 10-plus round magazine before the effective date of the law. There's no serial number on the magazine. Exactly. And you say, well, exactly. hold on a second. We'll, we'll require that you put a serial number. Who puts the serial number on? Who's, you know, it'd be like saying, put, put a VIN number on your car. Well, my car already has a VIN number. I'm not going to mess with it. Uh, but but wh- why would I have serial numbers on gun magazines? I mean, there, there, there are parts of Measure 114 that make reference to statutes, get this, Tammy, that do not exist on the books in Oregon. Did you know that? As in? Well, as in throughout most laws, they'll say, you know, when they get to a point, say they have to define something or say, you know, what this is, they say reference to ORS, blah, blah, blah. And you go look those statutes up, they don't exist. So in other words, the people who wrote this thing wrote it like it was full of potholes, at least from a legal standpoint, and they didn't care. Exactly. And she she responded to that, but her response is that of their typical, trust me. It's, well, it was probably a typo. Um, it will likely be corrected when 2022 legislation is printed. That's not going to happen until 2024, by the way. And who's to say they're not going to go back and create that ORS and say well, whatever they want to and say? And there's the it's problem. Whole... What, you're, what you're saying is they wrote a half-assed Measure 114 and then said, but the right. legislature will straighten it out. 
Do you think the current legislature is going to be inclined to straighten out any of that without putting their own spin on it, saying, well, if we got this much out of the voters, we'll go ahead and extend it even further? Tammy, thanks for the call. You've got the Lars Larson Show. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And why are so many guys in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, that's the one that overturned the Roe v. Wade abortion decision of 1973 why are so many guys getting snipped and i've got a theory of my own but i'd certainly invite yours as well welcome to the lars larson show if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism it's right here every day at 866 hey lars that's 866-439-5277 send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you can always always vote in our twitter poll we put up a brand new question each and every day from the news of the day and then you can vote on it at Twitter, at Lars Larson Show, or you can vote on it uh, on our website at LarsLarson.com so you don't have to worry about censorship or anything else. Although, it's beginning to sound like Elon Musk is making some gigantic difference and changes at Twitter. He's managed to double the amount of child pornography that gets uh, stripped off the site, and I think that's a good thing. But if he could do it that easily... Does that suggest that Twitter wasn't even trying beforehand if the new guy walks in and in a couple of weeks he manages to get so much disgusting, illegal material off Twitter without even having to try hard? That kind of suggests the previous administration at Twitter was not even making an effort at it. But I want to talk about getting snipped. So I don't have a dog in the fight on this one. But there's an interesting phenomenon that's been identified by doctors, and that is Uh, Let me take you back to June of this year. Uh, You can actually go back a few months before June. June was when the U.S. Supreme Court actually formally announced its decision in overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, Now, of course, many of us heard about it a couple of months earlier because there was a leak at the U.S. Supreme Court. Not the first leak in court history, probably won't be the last one. And as of today, as far as I can tell, Nobody at the Supreme Court or the FBI or anyone else can identify who the leaker was who leaked out the information. Turned out that the leak was accurate, that the court was going to overturn Roe v. Wade. That, of course, a couple of months before June. June is usually the month when the U.S. Supreme Court releases some of its biggest decisions. But a couple of months beforehand, the information leaks out. The left goes absolutely bananas. And they say, you can't take away our abortion rights. Well, as many of us have discussed, I've read the Constitution. I can't count the number of times I've read it. I can't find abortion in there anywhere. Now, what the court had to do back in 1973 was they kind of read between the lines, pulled out their magic Ouija board, and figured out there's a right to abortion in a document that never mentions childbearing, that never mentions abortion, that never mentions any of that stuff, but they found an abortion right in there. It never actually existed, as all of us knew. But then for the next 50 years, they killed about 70 million American babies. And that's a a terrible tragedy. And then finally, in June of this year, 
The U.S. Supreme Court, in the, in the case now known as Dobbs, it comes out of Mississippi. All Mississippi did was say, we'd like to put a limit on it. Maybe we can put a limit at 15 weeks. When you're 15 weeks, about four months along in a pregnancy, you're no longer allowed to get an abortion. And I've pointed out to you any number of times, that limit on abortion is far more liberal than most of Western Europe, which is usually what the liberals always want to say. Oh, those are the folks we have to pattern ourselves after. Western Europe is doing it right. Western Europe has a lot tighter requirements than that. Many of the countries limited to 12 weeks. Uh, a whole bunch of the countries limited to less than that. And, of course, you've got Texas and Idaho that limited to about six weeks. Say, make a decision. When it involves a human life, if you can hear the heartbeat, you can no longer seek an abortion. So, fast forward to today. What has happened as a result of Roe v. Wade being overturned in the Dobbs decision? Almost six months have gone by. And here's what's striking. There are doctors who now say they are seeing more men come in seeking vasectomies. In fact, the increase is estimated at about 34%. 34% more men are coming in and getting the SNP. You say, okay, fine, that's their decision. But here's what I'd like you to ask yourself, because as soon as I saw it, I, I started thinking about it. I was thinking, I wonder what's going on here. What exactly is the reaction? You have a national court decision that says, actually that it doesn't change abortion that much at all it is now it's now up to the states and in many of the states abortion is just as available as it ever was during roe v wade uh it's just as available today because the states are liberal states that have decided to continue to make it very very available uh abortion on demand all the way up to the moment before the baby would have been born viability is not an issue heartbeats are not an issue 15 weeks well you're not even looking at 15 weeks. You're looking at way beyond that. So why are these guys getting vasectomies? And I think this is the hidden message in all of that. And you're free to disagree with me. I love naysayers. But here's the message I get. There were men who said, I'm perfectly willing to not get a vasectomy, to apparently be sexually active with more than one person, because I know that all I've got to do, if I inadvertently impregnate somebody, is just give the young lady a few hundred dollars and she'll get an abortion and the baby will be disposed of. Apparently, the change in the Dobbs decision of saying, well, abortion may not be as available as it has been for a long, long time. And all of a sudden, a number of men say, then I'm getting the snip. I don't even want there to be a chance of an unintended pregnancy. Why? Because they perceive at least that there will be less ready access to abortion on demand because of a baby that turns out to be inconvenient. Now, I don't think babies are inconvenient. I think babies are little gifts from God. I, I God bless you if you've decided to have a child, good for you. But for women who have treated it this way, and apparently men who've seen it as their easy escape hatch from the possibility and the responsibility of parenthood, They've said, okay, I'm not even going to let there be a chance of that. More than a dozen states now ban abortions altogether. And apparently the folks over at Planned Parenthood say, wow, now we have to look at contraception as a shared responsibility. In other words, the availability for 50, almost 50 years 
of Roe v. Wade abortion anywhere, anytime, all the way to the moment of birth has been something that encouraged people to go out and be irresponsible. And now that the Dobbs decision has overturned Roe v. Wade, all of a sudden uh, there are a bunch of young men, maybe not all young men, maybe there are some older men as well, who've decided, now, you know what, I'm going to be responsible. I'm actually going to, well, take this matter into my own hands, so to speak, and make sure that I don't create an unintended pregnancy. Now, isn't that interesting? When abortion was readily available, not a problem. Don't worry about it. It's a few hundred dollars. We can get rid of that inconvenient baby. As I said, I don't think babies are inconvenient. They are a gift from God. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Pleasure to be with you. Why is it and why has it been so hard to get America to a point of real ID? Now, let me explain what I mean by that. The wallet in my pocket has a driver's license in it that's considered an extended uh, driver's license, one that has expanded capabilities. In other words, if Tina and I decided to get in the car and drive to Canada, we used to do that. Now it's maybe a little bit tougher than it was before because of their crazy COVID policies. But if you have an enhanced driver's license, that's actually the term of art they use, uh, you're allowed to drive across that border, not fly, but drive across the border. And it effectively works like a little passport because what it shows is that you have gone into the DMV with your passport. You show them your passport. You answer some extra questions. I think there was some fingerprinting involved and uh, and actually a personal interview. And all of a sudden, you've got a driver's license that will get you across one international border. I don't think it works for Mexico, but it does work for Canada. You say, okay, that's real ID. It shows that you are an American citizen living in America and that you have the right to travel to other countries and get back in, at least one one other country that you can drive to. Well, what happened was after the 9-11 terrorist attacks in September of 2001, the Congress said, we need to get to real ID. And I couldn't have agreed with them more. Because some of the context of what was going on at the time, I don't know if you remember this or not, but in the summer right before the terrorist attacks on September the 11th, um, both George Bush, uh, a rhino Republican, uh, and the Democrat Congress had planned to grant amnesty to millions of illegal aliens. In fact, the famous line from Bush was, I'll see you at the signing ceremony, meaning that they already had this thing worked out to such a deal. They had it so locked in that they were saying, hey, well, next time you see us, we'll be signing the bill to grant amnesty to millions of people. The last time it had happened before then was in 1986 when the Congress kept passing this piece of garbage and finally got Reagan to sign it, and he called it one of the biggest mistakes he'd ever made. So in the summer of 2001, the Congress and the then Republican, I guess you can still call George Bush a Republican, although a rhino, uh, we're ready to sign the deal. And then the terrorist attacks happened. And I thought to myself, and I was being stupid when I said this to myself, that I thought they're finally going to get about the business of making sure that people only come into this country, that they only fly on airplanes 
if they are legally in the United States. So that would include citizens. It would include visitors who've come here legitimately. It would include green card holders who are on the track to become a citizen of the United States. And boy, was I wrong. They passed the real ID requirement. And get this, it was supposed to go into effect in 2008. Yeah, 2008. They said every state in America has to come up with a real ID. They capitalized the real and they capitalized the ID. A real ID driver's license or some kind of ID card that would say this is a person who has proved to us with documents that they are an American citizen or a legal resident alien and they have a right to be in this country. And I thought, wow, we're well on the way to finally ending this illegal alien problem. And as I said, mea culpa, I was completely wrong. Well, guess what's happened now? Over the years since this was supposed to have taken full effect in 2008, so what, we're 14 years into this now, every year or two, the states, some of them, some of the states have actually complied and said, yeah, no problem. We'll make sure that if we hand out a driver's license that we've actually had the person prove that they are legally in the state. Now, of course, the blue states said, no, we're not going to do that. We're sanctuary states. We're friendly to illegal aliens. And uh, that we don't want to comply with the law. So they kept getting extension after extension after extension. So they did not have to comply with the law. Well, guess what? They have now provided another extension. It was all supposed to have finished going into effect, and now it's not. They are now extending it, that is, Homeland Security, run by that joker Mayorkas, the guy who keeps going before Congress under oath and swearing like Sergeant Schultz, the border is secure. I mean, he actually says this in sworn testimony. While five million illegals have crossed into America in the last two years, But if the Congress asks him, hey, you're under oath. If you lie to us, we could actually refer you for prosecution and you could go to federal prison. Is the border secure? And what does Mayorkas say? He says, yep, border is secure. Take my word for it. Well, I'm not going to take his word for it, but his department, the Department of Homeland Security, has announced today that U.S. air travelers will be required to present real ID to board a domestic U.S. airplane flight beginning May 7th of 2025. That's how far out. Two and a half years it's being pushed out. Almost three years. Uh, Before Monday's announcement, the implementation was supposed to have taken effect in May of of, of next year, about six months, a little over six months from now. Now they're going to push it back two more years. Now, I want to make a prediction for you, and I'll tell you that this is not a tough prediction to make. If you have a law that was supposed to have taken full effect by 2008 and 14 years later, all that's happened is they keep kicking the can down the road saying, well, we're not going to do the full implementation until May of, and then they pick a year, May of 2023. And then when you get close to May of 2023 and you say, okay, is it finally going to go into effect? Full effect nationwide real ID for everybody who wants to, in this example, travel on a domestic airplane flight. They say, yep, May of 2023. And then six months out, they say, no, make it 25. I have a prediction that somewhere in the fall of 2024, 
They're going to push it out two more years, and then probably two years after that. In announcing the new deadline, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said that the 24-month extension will give states time to ensure that residents can obtain the real ID compliant license or ID. They've had 14 years to get it done. And if they haven't got it done in 14 years, they ain't going to be doing it at all. He went on to say DHS will also use this time to implement innovations to make the process more efficient and accessible. We will continue to ensure that the American public can travel safely. Well, you haven't been doing that now. Do you know that an awful lot of Americans have had the experience in the last two years of getting on a commercial airline and they see people who have all of the hallmarks of being illegal aliens? And by that, I'm not talking about ethnicity or race. What I mean is they sit down next to somebody and they start talking to them and they've got a big manila folder full of documents and they say, uh, you know, where do you live? And they say, oh, I just I just crossed the border. I mean, many of them will just simply admit it. And how did they get on the airplane? Did they have picture ID? No. Do you know what they've allowed? While all of the rest of us who show up at an airport want to get on a commercial airline have to have picture ID. You show up without your picture ID, you ain't getting on the plane. But for illegal aliens, they actually use the ticket that was written to them by the Customs and Border Patrol agent to say you've illegally entered. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k flats. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. The country, that becomes the ID that gets you on the airplane, and Americans have two more years to comply with real ID. You've got the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, you can find that easily at Lars Larson Show on Twitter and at LarsLarson.com, our website, of course. Um, I, I want. I wish... We had is a kind of a side issue to this next thing I want to talk about. It's reforms to what are known as the H-1B visa program. I wish Congress had a rule. I mean, they have lots of rules for themselves, filibuster rules and quorums and all that. I wish they had a rule that said you have to put an honest description of the actual bill on it, like the Inflation Reduction Act that doesn't do anything but drive inflation higher. And now we've got something called the Eagle Act. And I don't know why it's called the Eagle Act, but I would imagine Chris Chemelinski can tell me. He's the director of policy at Numbers USA. Chris, welcome back to the program. Why do they call it the Eagle Act? There's probably some really highly ironic reason, isn't there? 
Yeah, yeah. First, thanks for having me back. And, and sure. second, yeah, it's an acronym for, for, for something. I haven't memorized exactly what the E-A-G-L-E stands for yet, but um, I think the most important thing is it, it, it's bad. This is just going to basically allow most temporary foreign workers to be able to stay here permanently. So it really takes away the whole meaning of the word temporary. Um, but this is going to have a, a horrible impact on American workers and take thousands of job opportunities away from them permanently. See, and, and this is the thing I've explained to people over and over again. We're a very generous country. I mean, of all the countries on Earth, 200 or so, there are probably a couple of dozen that anybody actually wants to move to. And there are lots and lots of countries uh, out of the 200 that you would like to move out of, and you completely understand why people want to get out of them. So you have America, as I would argue, one of the best that anybody could move to. I would actually call it the best, but that may be uh, egocentric and ethnocentric and jingoistic <laughs> and a whole bunch of other things. But I say no, nowhere on earth can you find the kind of liberty and opportunity that you find here, not Canada, not Great Britain, not Germany, not even our best allies. We're better than all those. And we say to people, if you want to come in, you have to go through the process. And once you've gone through a process that can be six or seven years long, as the head of uh, Numbers USA policy, you probably know exactly how long it is on average. And then once you get here, uh, work hard, support yourself, keep your nose clean, don't break the law. And in five years, you can study hard, take a test, take the oath, and become an American citizen. This just throws a lot of that right out the window. Yeah, it does. And it's really, um, you know, a couple of things that you said really, really hit the point for me. You know, this is really, to me, it's insulting for the people that have done it the right way and, and are in their home countries awaiting their green card. And they've been awaiting their green card for five, 10 years, and they've gone through the entire process. They've been approved, but they've been told you cannot come to the United States because that may jeopardize your green card approval status uh, with 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 the immigration system. So, you know, these folks, instead, they're coming here on temporary guest worker visas. Then their employers can sponsor them for a permanent employment-based visa. And again, prior ones that were sponsored for employment-based visas have had to go back to their home countries and sit and wait for a green card to become available. These folks will just be able to get to sit here indefinitely until their green card comes. So it really you know, it flies in the face of those that have done it the right way. It changes the rules. And, you know, you go to you go to the word generous. Um, you know, this is an addition to the 1.2 million folks that we admit every single year, not to mention all those that are coming across the border illegally that we're releasing into communities with work permits right now. This is another group of people that will be able to come. They'll be cleared off the, the cleared off the, the the annual cap, so that a new batch of temporary guest workers will be able to come in after them, and they'll also get to stay stay here permanently. Well, and it it, it sounds as though it's a system you could game pretty easily. So somebody walks into right. the U.S. consulate or embassy and says, "I'd like to uh, move to America," and they say, "Well, you be be prepared for a five or ten year wait," and they say, "Well, are there any other options?" And then some private company comes along and says, "Hey." We'll get you an H-1B visa. Well, that only gets me there. No, no, go over there, work work the job for a couple of years, apply for one of these, and you're going to be years ahead of the person who actually did it the way you were supposed to, but you end up getting the same thing, right? Yeah, it is. And and that's when we, you know, when we talk about what's happening with the with the ongoing border crisis, at the end of the day, these uh, uh, most of these foreign workers, 
that want to come here to the United States. That's the goal. They want to come here. They don't necessarily care if they're coming here on a green card, visa, asylum status, refugee status. They don't really care about the status. At the end of the day, they just want to be here and they want to have the ability to live here and work here uh, and, and, and participate in our great country. And, and we're allowing them to do that. So, you know, it's, it's artificially increasing the immigration quotas, allowing people to come in when, when, when they don't. Right now, they would normally count against some sort of a cap. They're no longer going to count against the caps anymore if this thing should pass. So it's just bypassing a whole lot of, a whole lot of policies that Congress has already passed that we've been living on for the last, living by for the last 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, and it's just simply bypassing them because this is the easy way to do it. Uh, is to, it's, it's a way they found a way to cut corners and, and help out to, the big businesses that don't want the cheap foreign labor. Sorry about that. I'm talking to Chris Chemelinsky, who's director of policy and activism at Numbers USA, which makes it its business to know the numbers on immigration. You do mention that the H1, this H-1B, the sweetener to get Congress to go ahead and sign off on it, and maybe they'll pull in some rhino Republicans and faux conservatives. Is there anything good in this package at all that they're using to say, here's the reason you can vote for it, tell your constituents you've done the right thing, and you can just ignore all the other bad stuff that comes with it? Yeah, well, there are. Um, But the thing is, is this doesn't just apply to H-1Bs. This is all, or not all, but a lot of the visa, the the temporary guest worker visas. So this applies to H-2Bs, which are low-skilled guest workers, for example. These are landscapers and people working in restaurants and hotels during peak tourism seasons. So they did, though, throw in a couple of solid positive reforms to the H-1B program and some of the, and, and, and the B visa, which is the business visitor visa. But at the end of the day, the, the, the damage that it does far outweighs the positive reforms that happen to be included in the legislation. Well, and Chris, I want people to think about how this applies to them. So not a couple of hundred miles from where I'm standing right now, there's a very nice community. The houses cost a heck of a lot more in that neighborhood than in my neighborhood, but it's near a ski area. And uh, a few years ago, I remember the ski area said, oh, yeah, we're hiring all Peruvians uh, to run the ski lifts and to do all the, you know, all the hard work jobs. And you, you ask them, well, why are you doing that? Well, you know, because we can hire these these guys cheaper and they're coming in, uh, you know, uh, ostensibly to get a taste of America and learn the language a little bit. But really, they're just hiring them because they're cheaper workers, because if they wanted to hire American kids, They'd have to pay more money because it's an expensive community to live in. So they say, well, we can get the cheap workers and push those American kids right out of the way. And I want parents to think about that. If you really want your son or daughter to be working a job and learn about the work world and and, and develop some work skills like showing up on time and things like that, those jobs are being given away to foreign nationals simply because it's cheaper. Yeah, and, and that's why it's important to, to, to mention that this doesn't just apply to H-1Bs, it applies to H-2Bs, because that would be the example. The yep. resorts rely heavily on the H-2B pre- program to bring in those low-skilled workers at a cheaper rate, and now they're just not going to get them for the season. They'll be able to keep them permanently if they want, uh, or if they want to move on to another job and take away other job opportunities from American workers, they can do that as well. Because, again, as long as their employer applies for, for an employment-based green card for them, they'll be able to stay and work here permanently. Unbelievable. That's Chris Chemelinski, the director of policy at Numbers USA. Chris, it's always a pleasure. Back in a moment, your calls at 866-439-5277. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network.
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. And this segment of the show on the Radio Northwest Network is always brought to you by Valhalla Tea. Valhalla Tea is a perfect gift for the holidays, helping veterans with every bag sold at ValhallaTea.com. Our Twitter poll question today, should Washington State require that all gun owners, not buyers, owners, undergo an annual background check? And I'd say no to that. But if you say, well, who made that law? They say, well, the voters did. In 2018, four years ago, the voters in Washington State passed a uh, an initiative called 1639. Now, I did a bunch of things requiring safe storage and this, that, and the other thing. But one of the things that was hidden in the law, because it has never been enforced, because Governor Jay Inslee's administration decided never to enforce this law. And you'd think, a gun law that a tried and true Democrat like Jay, Comrade Jay, was, uh, you know, he's a he's a gun nut. I mean, he's an anti-gun nut. And you say, how is it possible that they didn't enforce the law? Because the state bureaucracy looked at it, and when you hear about what the law actually requires, you kind of understand why they would say, there's no way in the world we can make that happen. Here's what the law requires, 1639. All the other things you've heard about, fine, that's in the law. Here's what's in the law. It says, if you own a pistol or a semi-automatic rifle and you live in the state of Washington, you must be put through an annual background check. And if you imagine the, you know, that they call you up or you have to go down and do it, no. This law envisioned the idea that the state of Washington would maintain a list of every single gun owner in the state. It has no such list. And then they imagine that with that list, they would then say, we're going to run a background check on every single person who owns a pistol or some pistols and a semi-automatic rifle. Now, clearly, I've got a dog in the fight on this one because I own some guns that qualify for that kind of treatment. And then I started thinking about, well, how would this actually work? I mean, now Jay Inslee's administration says, we're going to start implementing this. The first thing they have to do is come up with a list of everybody in the state who owns a gun. Now, they might be able to do this going forward because of background checks uh, and forms that have to be filed. I think they're going to run up against some federal laws that say you can't maintain that kind of database. But let's assume that they do that. That means they will not have a list of everybody who already owns a gun. Now, what happens then? Then they run you through a background check. Total number of gun owners, north of a million million people. I don't know how far north of a million people, but it's north of a million people. So you figure maybe 20 bucks per background check if you're doing them in quantity. So every year, you're going to run $20 million worth of background checks on citizens who've done absolutely nothing wrong. Now, if you say, but it'll make everybody safer. You know, you could probably... If you didn't live in a free society like ours, you might argue that if the police could just search anybody's house they wanted to anytime they want to, they might catch a lot of crooks. Now, they'd be violating the Constitution. They'd be violating the civil rights uh, and the statutory rights of citizens. But, yeah, it'd probably be safer. If the police walking down the street could stop anybody they wanted without probable cause, And not just engage in conversation. Police are allowed to engage in ordinary conversation. But if a police officer could just walk up and say, you, what are you doing here? Why are you here? 
What are you all about? You know, like like maybe in Venezuela or Cuba or China or Russia. Yeah, they may be able to do it there. They can't do it here. But yeah, it, it might be a safer society. It'd be a it'd be an authoritarian society where the government is treating citizens like they have to explain who they are, why they're there, what they're doing, without any kind of legal cause whatsoever. So imagine this, Jay Inslee's administration, and it's actually, this is reported by Crosscut, which is a left-wing publication uh, in Seattle. Governor Jay Inslee's administration is now working to implement a 2018 voter-approved firearms background check law. The administration's reversal came after a September report by Crosscut that documented how state officials in 2020 said it's not cost-effective or efficient to implement the law requiring annual background checks on people who own pistols and semi-automatic rifles. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. Can you believe this? They would just say, I don't care if you're a a law-abiding citizen or that we don't have probable cause. We're just going to run you through a background check every single year for more than a million people. Now, if it makes sense to anybody, I'd love to hear the naysayer call. Let's go to Mitch in Bonnie Lake. Hey, Mitch, welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. I got something that ties into your background thing there. Um, okay. Believe me, your, your Second Amendment rights, and I am pro-Second Amendment, so don't take this wrong, but I guarantee okay. you your Second Amendment rights are 100% safe here in the state of Washington. Ha. I have, I have constant, and I can prove it, machine gun fire going on across the street from my house. I'm not talking a semi-automatic. I'm talking full-on. I have video recorded proving I'm in my own, I'm in my own yard. And straight across the street from me, it's been a regular basis. The police refuse to do anything about it. They've actually asked me to stop calling them, believe it or not. And I have a letter from uh, Lieutenant Fajardo, I believe, which is supposed to be in charge of the Mountain Division. You got to send me that letter so I can take a look at it. I promise you we will look into it and see what we can find out. Mitch, I appreciate it. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network and the Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.